Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Once again, your boy Ryan Leslie, Art of the Hustle, Work Radio, our media. Man, you are not going to be ready for the incredible story of Neil Blumenthal, one of the four horsemen of Warby Parker. They put together a billion-dollar business, came together in business school, and he's literally shared with us some of the most valuable advice, I think, for entrepreneurs. Check it out right here on Art of the Hustle. This episode of Art of the Hustle is presented by Emirates Airline. Now let's get into it. Once again, your boy Ryan Leslie, Art of the Hustle. We work, work radio, iHeart. You know how we do. Today I have, well actually I'll let you introduce yourself. Your name is Neil. Yeah. And uh, for everybody that's listening and wouldn't know what you do, why don't you give an introduction? Sure. So I'm Neil Blumenthal. I'm the co-founder and co-CEO of Warby Parker. The big dog. The big dog. Right. So we're going to just kind of break right into it. The idea here is just to, to get a sense of, first, how did this even come about? And then, you know, what are some great takeaways for everybody that's listening? What are some great takeaways that they can apply to their own journey as entrepreneurs? So we'll start at the beginning. Uh, you met your co-founders while you were doing an MBA at Wharton. Okay, so, so, so what were you doing before that MBA? So before I, I went to Wharton, um, I was running a nonprofit. So if you were to sort of think like, you know, who's going to build this company? I don't know if my profile was, was the exact perfect one, but uh, I was running this nonprofit that would train low-income women in the developing world to start their own businesses, giving eye exams and selling glasses. So I would travel around the world and set up programs in uh, rural Bangladesh and in India and in Ghana and in Guatemala. Um, and uh, in the hopes of just trying to get glasses on as many people's faces as as needed them because the thing that was crazy um, and and the reason why I joined this nonprofit called Vision Spring was because I learned that almost a billion people don't have access to glasses Mm. Um, and that just seems crazy, right? Because if you can't see, you can't learn, you can't work. Yeah, 
when we talk about uh, it's Vision Spring, is that what's called? Yeah. When we talk about Vision Spring, the concept behind Vision Spring was to actually not only put glasses on people who needed them, but also to foster this spirit of entrepreneurship amongst women in these developing countries. So for you, has entrepreneurship just always been something that you thought was important, so something that you pursued on your own? Were you always an entrepreneur yourself? Were you selling you know, lemonade or pita? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't think I would have called myself an entrepreneur as a little kid, but as I look back, there were things I did that were entrepreneurial. Um, you know, it, I remember in high school that I would promote clubs and um, promoting clubs in high school. And well, I grew up in the city in, okay. here in New York, so it's yeah. <laughs> and would also make maybe a fake ID or two. This right. is before 9/11 and, and the Patriot Act. Okay. Um, okay. But uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, I remember always um, asking my mom for a beeper because this was in right way before uh, the. You know, people had cell phones, um, and my mom would tell me, "Well, you only doctors or drug dealers have beepers, so um, you can once you go to medical school, I'll get you uh, a, a beeper." So I wasn't able to do that, but I guess nightclubs, IDs, um, and then when I was really young, I remember seeing this infomercial for a food dehydrator, um, and uh, I got super excited about it because infomercials, right? tend to brainwash you and it's like if you order now in the next 15 minutes you'll get a second one free and a dilemmatic slicer and this food dehydrator makes uh dried apples and raisins and all this stuff and i was just like oh my god this is amazing i have to you know buy this thing i'm going to set up a, a, a dried fruit stand um and i somehow convinced my parents that all the money that i'd been saving through allowance or whatever i could buy this food dehydrator um, and talk about a terrible idea to set up a dried fruit stand in, in the middle of Manhattan. Right. <laughs> but we got this thing and it was this uh, sort of these crappy plastic trays um, and at the very bottom there was just a heat coil and a fan. Uh, and basically if you wanted to make raisins uh, you'd have to buy grapes and then put it in this thing for like two days uh, before the, the grapes would dry out and make raisins and it was cheaper to just go buy raisins, raisins. in the supermarket. Right. Um, but yeah, th those are my, my first ventures. <laughs> the question I have for entrepreneurs that are out here that are listening, how important do you feel your MBA at Wharton was? Obviously, you've met your co-founders there, but how important is education? How important was your, you know, was, was your MBA experience to the journey that you've been on with Warby, with, with Warby Parker? Um, you know, as you mentioned, that's where I met Jeff, Andy, and Dave, and Warby Parker wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Wharton. Right. Um, I think that those two years um, not only gave us the space to think and develop the idea, but doing it in that environment where we were with some of the smartest people in the world, and they helped us refine our ideas and educate us on areas that we were really naive about, like performance marketing or UX design, because we'd have people in our class that were just were from all different industries, uh, and getting their input was so valuable. Not only that, right? We were taking classes with some of the smartest professors in the world. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, we 
we're trying to figure out what should we price our glasses at, right? Because Warby Parker, we want to transform the optical industry. Um, we thought that, you know what, we're going to do something radical. We're going to charge $45 for a $500 pair of glasses. Um, and we went in and met with the head of the marketing department at Wharton, um, who's a pricing expert. And uh, we went in there. We had this beautiful PowerPoint presentation. Um, and we put it on the table. And we said, hey, we're going to transform the eyewear industry. We're going to sell glasses with prescription lenses for $45 instead of $500. Um, and he looked at us and he just laughed and he said, no, it's not going to work. And we're like, well, we haven't even told you our business plan. Look, we have these amazing graphs that all right. go up and to the right. And he said, um, one-tenth of the price, $45 for a $500 product, is outside the realm of believability. Nobody will trust that you're selling good quality. Um, and whatever you think your costs of goods are, whatever you think that it's going to cost for you to make these glasses, put in the prescription lenses, it's going to be more than you think. And you're going to have no gross margin. And you're going to have no gross margin to market with and let people know that you even exist. So even if you could pull it off, nobody will know you exist. Mm. Um, and we walked out of that meeting really defeated, <laughs> mm. as an entrepreneurial journey often has these highs and lows. Um, but Right, we it helped us figure out that we should indeed price our glasses at $95 um, instead of 45 because that is what people will believe is good. But more importantly, he was right. Our cost of goods ended up doubling from what we thought they were mm. going to be because when we were designing our glasses, we were like, oh, well, we want to use this more premium cellulose acetate or the sure. five barrel hinges. And um, so, you know, being at Wharton and getting access to those amazing people, it was night and day. Um, I also think there's this like misperception that entrepreneurs are these crazy risk takers and that all of them drop out of school. Um, and, uh, you know, for us, all four of us actually had backup plans. Um, I had, uh, between my first and second year at Wharton, worked at McKinsey. Mm -hmm. uh, Dave had actually two internships. Um, uh, likewise, Andy had an internship. Jeff had already... Um, basically committed to go back to the private equity fund he was at before school. So, um, you know, we hedged our bets. Um, and I think that actually made Warby Parker better because it was like, hey, we're going to, we have to have our, our, this plan needs to be really tight and proven if we're going to sort of give up another opportunity to pursue it. What's it like actually starting with four co-founders? That's normally seems like an outlier when you start thinking about like a founding team definitely i think if you were to figure out who's the a team to go and take on the optical industry it wouldn't be um two guys who had worked at bain and company as management consultants one of whom went into private equity the other of whom went into uh, banking it wouldn't be a third guy who was an investment banker and it wouldn't be the fourth guy me who's a, a nonprofit guy right mm. um but the four of us uh, had a shared vision, um, had uh, a shared work ethic, um, and we started sort of tinkering and iterating. Um, and this is actually one of the reasons why Warren was helpful. Like we were taking management classes and we were talking about 360 reviews and uh, some of the stuff that people review sort of think of as fluffy, but 
what we would do is as a four-person team we'd go to a bar every month and do uh, a review and put each other in the hot seat and say hey you're doing this well hey this can be improved hey when you shoot me a 10-page email at 2 in the morning I want to reach through the computer screen and strangle you yeah um, and what that did was it Someone allowed was doing that yeah. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, th I think, right, all relationships are really tough. Um, and if you don't want one to end in disaster, then you got to really work at it. And, you know, we created the frameworks in, in order to, to do that because um, it's human nature to get defensive. And, right, you with four people, we would divide up responsibilities. And, yeah, sometimes we would email each other and be like, hey, did you think of this? Did you think of this? Did you think of that? Um, and, of course, the gut reaction of the person receiving that email would be like, this guy think I'm an idiot. He thinks mm -hmm. I haven't thought about all these things. Right. Um, and then you start to get angry um, and stuff, you know, can bubble over. But if you have the conversation, that's like, dude, why are you emailing me a 10 page email about my area of responsibility? I have this covered. You quickly learn that the, my co-founder wasn't like worried or checking in on me. He was up late and his mind was just racing because right. he's excited about this idea. And he had yeah. these other ideas and just wanted to make sure that he shared right. them. Right. Um, so right. it was like we tried to make sure that we were being honest with one another and, and try to, you know, build a healthy team dynamic. Yeah. Well, you're a co-CEO, so, so you have another person who's also the CEO. What is that dynamic like? What's the day-to-day -day look like for a founding team of four? So um, there were four of us while we were still at school, um, and you know we would meet every day. We were primarily working out of, out of my apartment, um, just getting everything ready for launch, right? And 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 of course, every time everybody thinks like, "Oh, I'm going to launch on this date," and then ends up being like six months later, which was pretty much what happened to us. Um, and uh, what we did was uh, we all worked on the business until graduation. Um, and we knew that it probably wasn't going to make sense to have like a four-person, right, like leadership team. Um, Jeff had already uh, sort of committed to go back to the private equity fund he was at beforehand. Uh, Andy was more excited about investing, so he went into venture capital. And then Dave and I uh, were deciding, hey, how should we work with one another? Should mm -hmm. one of us be the CEO, the other one be president and chairman? Should, you know, yeah. we were trying to create all these bizarre constructs. And we say, you know what? Like, our working relationship's working. We can be equals. We can still divvy up responsibility um, so that way, you know, there are direct reporting lines, um, but that we would, um, you know, be sort of equals and in especially externally, right? We both have the same title, so we could represent the company as, as needed. Um, in our office, we both sit in desks right next to each other. Mm. Um, it's open office, so everybody has visibility of what's going on. He and I are able to check in, you know, like throughout the day, even if it's just like two seconds, like, hey, this just happened, this just happened. We try and make it a situation where it's not like, hey, you know, tell mom something and if she says no then you go tell dad yeah um so <laughs> we always have sort of like a, a unified front and i think people think that we share the same brain mm -hmm. um, but what's nice is that it forces us to right make sure that if one of us has an idea that's got to pass muster with the other one mm -hmm. uh, so i think it leads to more thoughtful decision making yeah when was when when was Morby founded and and how quickly did it grow? How, how you know where where are you guys now? I mean employees that kind of vibe. So for someone that's in their you know in their laptop right now thinking about their future, 
what's the potential, right? Sure. How quickly can something like this really take off from an idea to... So we had the idea in uh, late 2008, um, and we worked on it for about a year and a half before we launched. Okay. Um, and we launched February 15th, 2010. Um, we knew we were building a fashion brand. We wanted to get um, a, a lot of fashion press and be in the best uh, fashion women's book, which was Vogue, and the best uh, fashion men's book, GQ. And we were fortunate and we were able to get right. into both. And, and here we launched. We hit our first year's sales targets in three weeks, sold out of our top 15 styles in four weeks, had a wait list of 20,000 people. So we were incredibly fortunate in that when this thing launched, it took off like a rocket ship. Um, we're now seven years in, uh, we have uh, over a thousand employees mm. um, through our buy a pair, give a pair program. We've distributed several million pairs of glasses to people in need. Um, we now have 50 stores. Mm. We never thought that we'd even have stores. Um, and yeah, it's been this wild, wild ride. That's, that's amazing, that's amazing. Do you believe that taking that extra time to launch, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, making those extra phone calls was the reason why the launch was as successful as it was or do you, i mean there are a lot of folks who really they always seem to take pixie dust if you will luck out of the equation how much of it was timing how much of it was hey let's spend another six months of preparation before we before we uh, put our foot on the gas? I think it was all about preparation. Um, mm. And I think there's this belief that, especially within Silicon Valley, that, oh, you just gotta build something crappy and get it out there, and this idea of minimum viable product. And you know what? Like, the world is a competitive place, and if your thing is crappy, it's not gonna get traction. Now, this is not to say that you should overinvest in something, but like, know the product and service that you're offering and for us we were offering a fashion accessory eyeglasses are a fashion accessory we were offering a health product right eyeglasses are a health product you need a prescription so we had to have a good product um, that being said you know we were able to launch this business with hundred and twenty thousand um, dollars by being super super scrappy um, so my argument's not to overinvest, but it's how do you de-risk every part of this business. So for us, we surveyed the crap out of all of our friends. Mm -hmm. We would go into optical shops, observe how people would buy glasses. Um, we uh, then, you know, had a lot of confidence that, hey, there's this great opportunity here. You know, one is less than 1% of glasses are being sold online. Uh, and this was what it was at the time in, in 2008. And yet all these other categories were selling online. Apparel was, mm -hmm. you know, over 10% on its way to 15%. Uh, Zappos was selling sneakers. Uh, Blue Nile was selling engagement rings. These products that you never thought could be sold online. So we thought we could make a lot of money just selling glasses online. Sure. And then we and all of our friends had that same experience, walking into an optical shop, having a crappy customer experience, um, and then walking out feeling like we got ripped off because glasses were you know, multiple hundreds uh, of dollars. So it felt like there was this real consumer need there. Then the question is, well, 
how do you do this? Um, we need to design a collection. Um, we needed to design a website so we had a way to sell our collection. Um, and we need to let people know we, we existed. Um, so for us, that was recognized as we're going to build a fashion brand here. Sure. Um, and you know, one of the first way we spent money before we even uh, paid ourselves salary was um, to hire a PR firm. <laughs> That's what's, that's what's necessary to build a fashion brand, in your opinion. Um, in in this case, time. because it was, you need credibility. You need people to say, like, this is okay and give you a stamp of approval within the, within the fashion world. Um, so either, right, it's going to be influencers or fashion editors. Um, and the question is, how do you get access to those folks? And if you're going to take a meeting at Vogue, right, you better have something good to show. <laughs> um, so, you know, we had already done our first photo shoot, so we had nice imagery. We had mock-ups of what the website was going to look like, so mm -hmm. that was going to look good. Um, we had our collection of frames um, that we were really proud of. Um, so, and we had this narrative and story of, like, what does Warby Parker mean? Right. Um, and how, uh, how are we different than every other fashion label out there? Um, and at the time, right, selling direct to consumers online was a novel concept. Having a home try-on program where people could select five frames, we ship it to them free of cost, like five days to try it on at home, that's a novel concept. Distributing a pair of glasses for every pair that we sold was a novel concept. So right, having all these hooks, um, I think, made it appealing um, to, to the press. And something that we often think about is, hey, am I doing anything that people want to talk about at the dinner table? Sure. Um, and if so, then maybe people will write about it. Right, right. What's the difference, I mean, I don't know if you've ever built just a software product, but what in your mind would you say would be the major differentiator between building an actual physical product and all of the entrepreneurs right now that are building software, whether it be enterprise or consumer or an app or that kind of experience? Yeah, I, th I think whenever you're dealing with physical goods, it's just... It ends up being a little more complicated. And I know that um, people think that's probably sacrilegious because it's like, it's software, it's technology, it's, it's complicated. It's, obviously, it's complicated. But um, right, we were having to write software and figure out a supply chain and work with manufacturers um, and uh, do quality control and all of these uh, and ship things. Um, and it just, what you have are very disparate skill sets yeah. and even you walk into Warby Parker now our headquarters here in New York has about 250 employees we have a second office in Nashville that has over 100 people um, but you you look at Warby Parker in our office and you have software engineers data engineers data scientists um, alongside uh, UX designers which is and product managers right which is a very typical structure but then you have those folks alongside writers and illustrators and graphic designers and eyewear designers um, and brand marketers um, and uh, construction managers and retail uh, architects um, and it, it's just um, a, a next to uh, customer experience folks. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, right, how do you get all of those different folks to work together um, is hard. And now let's hear from our brand partner. 
So I want to tell you a little bit something about uh, this amazing airline called Emirates. Not sure if you've heard of them. Have you? I have. And uh, actually, funny story, I flew on Emirates Airline. It was an amazing experience. I was all over. I was in uh, Japan, China, India, and Korea. And it was uh, it was pretty exhausting. And, you know, I think the last thing that you're looking forward to after a trip like that is a 14-hour flight home. But Emirates definitely made me rethink that. I felt like I could stay connected the entire time, which is, uh, for me, rare. I think I I'd never been on an international flight like that where you could kind of be on the internet the whole time. And so it was nice. I could I could, you know, have my phone connected and, and check in on things and then also, you know, enjoy uh, all their movies, all the music they had, and their multi-course meal. That service was pretty amazing. I heard about that multi-course meal. You know, when you fly in a plane, you don't expect the food to be to be really good, but I was I was pleasantly surprised and and you know, I think the level of service and meal experience was on par with the the rest of the flight and kind of it didn't didn't really feel like flying. And I don't know how much you've traveled recently, but I've had the I've been fortunate enough to, to get to fly at different places, and they definitely set a new standard for me about what to expect when you fly. And That's a good thing. Now back to the art of the hustle. So with all of that kind of living in your world, you're also married. You got a couple of kids. Yeah. How do you how do you unplug? How do you how do you create that balance? Uh, I mean, because obviously you're very very passionate about what you built, what you guys are continuing to build. How do you how do you, how do you do it? Oh man, I wish I had a good answer here. So my wife um, is an entrepreneur in her own right. She's now on her third business, uh, Rockets of Awesome, which uh, is children's apparel. Basically, you answer a short quiz uh, about your child and they send you all the clothes that kid needs for the season. Mm. Um, So it's uh, fun and convenient. You only pay for what you keep. She's raised uh, $20 million in venture for that. So she's at a crazy stage in, in her business because it's early stage right now. It's only been around six months or so. Mm. Um, then we have a two-year-old and a six-year-old. Um, so I, I think balance, I've never figured out balance, but I've, I think I've figured out integration. Yes. Um, and uh, Warby Parker's my life, my family's my life, and we, we figure out how to make it all work. So it's spring break, and my six-year-old who's in kindergarten right, has spring break. I'm lucky to live four blocks away from my parents. They help out a lot. Um, but I've got a speaking engagement next week um, in Orlando. And I wouldn't have accepted the speaking engagement except for that's during spring break and it's in Orlando. So the kids will come down. We'll do Disney World for the first time. So, I mean, that's just an example of how I try and make it mix. But Rachel and I end up spending a lot of our sort of date nights talking about (laughs) each other's work and business and never kind of turns off. Do you think that's that's uh, an ingredient for being as successful as the two of you are. I mean, uh, to raise 20 million in venture funding for a six month old business is once again an outlier. Yeah. Do, you, do you believe that that kind of sort of magic of integration is is kind of a secret sauce for, for, for the two of you? I think for, I think definitely for us. Um, and I think there's a certain level of focus that, that uh, great entrepreneurs have that, that I've seen. Um, and that they're just so passionate about a particular issue, question, problem, solution, um, and they pour every moment into it. And when they're walking down the street, they see something and that inspires them um, on some area of their business. Uh, And the folks that try and take on too much or constantly jumping from thing to thing, 
that that's that's really hard to build a big one business. How did you guys meet? Um, we actually met in college, uh, but we didn't start dating until after college. Okay. Um, when I was working at Vision Spring and my nonprofit, I was constantly traveling all over the world and would, you know, go to India for several weeks or live in El Salvador for six months, um, and I was constantly have throwing myself going away parties. I yes. think people stop showing up because they're like, you're always going away. <laughs> um, but uh, Rachel and I sort of reconnected at one of these yeah. going away parties and then uh, spent a lot of time emailing back and forth and yeah. eventually got serious. Was having children the inspiration behind your, your, your wife's Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Right. She was like, crap. I'm super busy. Yeah. My husband's super busy. Um, there's nothing worse than taking a four-year-old into a clothing store and trying to like buy clothes for them. How can we make this really easy, convenient, so you don't have to leave the house? Um, and I think, right, those are those those are those problems and that's why when sometimes I'm talking to folks that want to start their own business and they've stopped working someplace like it's like you're taking on number one too much risk in that you don't have uh, income but also you're running the risk of not getting good ideas right your good ideas are generally going to come from experiences and that could happen uh, in your personal life or your professional life like for me one of the things that led to the genesis of Warby Parker was um, when I was distributing glasses in the developer world, right, I was trying to figure out how do I get glasses as inexpensively as possible but still good quality because uh, I'm serving people living on less than $4 a day. Uh, and I'd go to these factories in China um, and here I was producing these glasses um, and then 10 feet away on a production line in the same factory I'd see some of the biggest names in fashion coming out and I walked out scratching my head like, this doesn't make sense. How come, like, I'm able to distribute glasses to people living on less than $4 a day, and yet these big fashion brands are selling the glasses for several hundred dollars? Sure. So, you know, when when Dave, um, fast forward to when I was in business school, and Dave was like, I just lost a $700 pair of glasses in the seat pocket of an airplane. Um, I was like, yeah, it's crazy. Like, <laughs> you know, glasses shouldn't that price is not justified by what it costs to manufacture. Yeah. And suddenly that led to a conversation that Jeff and Andy were chiming in. Andy yeah. was wondering, like, why aren't people selling glass online? And suddenly, boom, light bulbs went off. Um, and that's when we got to sort of cranking on, on the idea. So you guys have a, have a very interesting element to your business, which is the buy one, give one model. Uh, and um, you've distributed more than a million pairs, right? Um, what do you believe, first of all, where did that idea come from? Because I know you, we talked about having you know, great things that, that people could talk about, but, but where, where did the idea come from and how important is it and how important has it been to the business? So uh, the idea came from, we want to build a business that we were excited to come to work every day where we didn't want to roll over and hit the snooze button. Um, and I think we thought that also if we were going to build a place that we were excited to come to work, hopefully other people would come to be excited to come to work. And that all had to do with having a positive impact on the world. And we thought, how best can we do that? You know, here we're lowering the price of glasses from $500 to $95. That's going to help a ton of people here in the U.S., but there's still hundreds of millions of people around the world. How can we help those people? Well, what if we did a percent of profits? And it's like, well, 
we're a startup, we probably won't have profits mm-hmm. for a while. Yeah. Um, but also, um, we thought about, well, what about a percent of revenue? And then we thought, well, you know, at the end of the day, these are dollar amounts, and they're not necessarily the impact. The impact is a pa- is a pair of glasses on somebody's face that can yes. now be a productive member of, of society. So, you know, how do we make that happen? Um, not to mention that if it was just a percent of revenue or percent of profits, you know, what if that that can sometimes through you know tricky accounting, right? You can minimize that. Or sure. um, and what if we weren't running the company anymore? We really want to lock in the social mission to the to the core of the business. So that's why we committed to distribute a pair for every pair that we sold. Um, that being said, we've never thought of it as a marketing tool. Um, and in fact, when we were doing all those surveys early on um, of our customers, it became super clear that the customers we want to target care first and foremost how the glasses look on their face. So that's why we positioned ourselves as a fashion brand. Uh, second, price, and that's why we would sort of yell from the rooftops, $95 with prescription lenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, third, service, um, and that's why from day one it was uh, free shipping, free returns. Um, and frankly, Social Mission didn't even enter into their purchase calculus. Mm. So um, when we think about our communications hierarchy, and if we only have 10 seconds to capture the attention of a consumer, we're not talking about our social mission. In right. fact, a lot of our customers first learn about the fact that we distribute a pair to somebody in need after they've bought from us and they get a thank you card that says, thanks for purchasing Warby Parker. Oh, and by the way, we'll distribute a pair to somebody in need thanks to your purchase. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, has Was that inspired by any other program that you had seen was inspired by Vision Spring. Yeah, yeah. And, and Vision Spring is, is our primary partner in wow. this, okay. um, uh, which is really exciting to go from uh, being one of the first employees and the, and the director to then, you know, now being its largest donor um, and really helping it sort of scale. Um, it was pretty cool. I started this program uh, when I was at Vision Spring in Bangladesh that would train uh, low-income um community health workers to distribute glasses to people in need. Um, and literally last month, they just celebrated distributing a million pairs in wow. Bangladesh. Um, and I remember training the first 50 of these community health workers, and now there are 30,000 that have been trained, which is just uh, incredibly awesome. Um, and I think that's what actually um, gets our team so excited. So um, as sort of saying, you know, social mission is not most of the time is not a good marketing tool for a product or service uh, to consumers. However, it is a good tool to recruit and retain talent. Sure. The number one reason why people want to work at Warby Parker is because of our social mission, mm. but it's not the number one reason why people buy from us. Mm. Mm. It's, uh, it sounds like it's been an incredible journey, man, and you know, very, very few folks who are entrepreneurs are able to build a business whether on their, you know, on their first, second, even so that third time around that gets to that unicorn status, right? And uh, is there a common piece of advice that you hear about starting companies that you think is, is off? I mean, I know we talked about MVP and the concept <laughs> of MVP. Make sure your product is not a, a terrible product just for a concept. Make sure that it's actually competitive. So I, I, besides that, is there another common piece of advice that you feel should be debunked for entrepreneurs? Um, I think, you know, 
yeah, this idea that you have to risk it all. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think entrepreneurs should always be thinking about what information do they need to invest more in time and money into an idea. So, um, you know, again, we didn't drop out of school, um, but we were able to continue to build the business. Um, and once it was clear that it was going to succeed, then that's sort of when we went all in. Um, but, you know, as we were in the middle of deciding, you know, hey, we're going to build this website, we're going to sell these glasses, one of the, we kept getting this feedback that was like, hey, I want to touch and feel the glasses, I want to try them on, on their face. And it, it was one of those things where I was like, oh, you know, let's just ignore this um, because people, will, if you build it, they will come and will mm -hmm. sell online. But it kept getting louder and louder. And we realized, you know what, we couldn't ignore this idea that people want to touch and feel the glasses. Um, and at the same time, we were talking to folks at Zappos and others to just understand, you know, just the e-commerce e landscape. And I think at the time, Zappos had return rates of like 40 percent. Uh, 40%. Um, and if we were going to build this business and have free returns because we want to be customer centric, um, we would be bankrupt in the first week if uh, we had 40% return rates because with eyeglasses, you have to throw out the prescription lenses because the likelihood that somebody has the same frame with the same prescription in each eye with the same pupillary distance, it just doesn't happen. So then the question was, well, how do we reduce return rates? Oh, there's this fit issue, so there's probably going to be even higher return rates in Zappos. And that's where we came up with the idea for the home try-on program. Yeah. So it was, it was after sort of de-risking e-commerce and, and sort of to avoid using too much jargon, right, to reduce these friction points in the customer journey um, that was was very real. So we had this idea of the home try-on. It was really to make sure that our return rates weren't high, but it ended up being this novel thing that GQ called us the Netflix of eyewear. Um, so, you know, sometimes creativity and innovation, right, comes out of necessity. Yeah. Um, so now whenever we, you know, think that we have to make this big, big decision and we're sort of looking off the cliff into the abyss and like feel like we have to make this giant leap of faith we take a step back and think about how do i break down this decision into like 10 smaller ones yeah wow so so many gems the netflix of eyewear right are there changes in technology and changes in human behavior now where if you were to start warby parker again in 2017 you would change anything if you if you started it over again today what would you change I would say understand what is sort of driving, you know, people's decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and the basics still hold true, right? Value, service, convenience. Mm -hmm. um, and people keep saying, oh, millennials are so different. They're not that different, right? It's, it's those three things. What's different is that the threshold of good value and good service and convenience are just much higher. So I think about um, when I take a yellow taxi um, and sometimes I get frustrated when I have to take out my, my credit card and then I feel like I'm just a jerk, like this impatient jerk that thinks, it's, is it really that difficult to reach in my pocket mm -hmm. and take out my credit card? Um, well, 
Yes, because I've now get, have gotten used to taking a Lyft or an Uber where yeah. I don't have to do that. Um, so in this age uh, of uh, sort of instant gratification, right, how do you make sure that your product um, is priced right? Um, because the Internet has this great deflationary impact that I don't think en enough people talk about. Mm -hmm. That like one of the reasons why nobody can compete with Amazon, right, is because they're charging so much less. So if you're not able to dis deliver value, you know, think of some other idea uh, from a service perspective, right? Like we now can rate people, you get rated, right? Like the service better be damn good. Right. And convenience, like don't make me think, um, get it to me faster. So we've already, uh, since we started seven years ago, basically cut in half the number uh, of days that it takes for someone to place an order to, to get them a pair of glasses. And our customers, uh, actually their expectation isn't, crazy, mm -hmm. right? Um, thankfully, they don't expect to get a pair of glasses in the same time that it takes to get a Lyft or an Uber um, because it's a custom product. But better believe that we're spending a lot of time and energy trying to cut down yes. that, that time. So, you know, you're, if you're about to go up against Amazon or somebody else, uh, you better be differentiated. And differentiated means more value, more service, more convenience, you know, we're Warby Parker. We created a brand, um, and we only sell it ourselves. Yeah. So uh, that's how we're able to control the customer experience to make sure that every time someone buys a pair of glasses, it's good. Mm -hmm. um, it's also, right, we're not going to compete with Amazon directly. Thankfully, they're not in prescription glasses, but <laughs> they would never be able to sell Warby Parker because we don't sell to them. Yeah. So really thinking about um, all of those pieces right, yeah. is, is critical. How did you actually approach networking? Because a lot, a lot of entrepreneurs, when I talk to them, I say, "Look, what are, what do you believe the biggest challenges are between where you are today and where you want to be?" They always say, "Well, I, I wish I knew the right people, or I, I need more money." Which nine times out of ten right. actually comes down to knowing the, the right, right people, people, right? Definitely. So, uh, you, how did you approach networking, and uh, you know, what what would your recommendations be? You know, obviously, you found your core group that you've, yeah. you know. You had time at the bar and, you know, you, all of your work sessions and a lot of time was spent with that core group. But how do you approach networking beyond that core group to talk to folks at Zappos, talk to folks at some of these other places that gave you some of those insights that you needed? Um, I, th I think the, the most important thing is to learn and love the question, how can I help? Right. The best thing you can do from networking perspective is help other people. Um, and right, all of us, um, right, we, we weren't in college. This was graduate school. So we had, you know, several years of, of work experience in which we earned goodwill because mm -hmm. we busted our ass at our jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and so our bosses wanted to help us. Uh, former colleagues wanted to help us. We had earned all this goodwill. Um, and uh, we were nice. Uh, and we would open the door and hold it for people. I, I know this yeah. stuff feels and sounds so ridiculous. But uh, at the end of the day, you want to have a wide network. You want to meet people. You got to be somebody that people want to meet that want to introduce you to other people. Um, and you can only do that by helping other people. Um, so, right, Warby Parker, right, the four of us get credit for it, but it was, we had so much help from all over um, where when we asked somebody, hey, we're trying to think through this, you know anyone at Zappos, they're like, absolutely, let me introduce you to so-and-so. Um, and I don't think we would have been able to do that um, if we didn't have 
you know, those years of hard work and, and, and building that goodwill. Is there anyone that you would really love to meet that you haven't already through your vast network? Um, let's see. Let's put uh, it out there. Yeah. You know, the best thing about my job right now is that I get to meet really incredible people. I was just uh, email introduced to Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, the astrophysicist. Yeah. He was on my list of people I wanted to meet, so I, I, I'm really excited to, to have met him. Um, trying to think uh, of some other folks. Um, uh, yeah, this is, that's the great thing about this job is that, right, if I'm able to ask somebody like, hey, right. um, you know, can you connect me so-and-so? Um, and, you know, at the, I end every conversation with, well, you know, thank you. How can, how can I return the favor? How can I help you back? This, is, this has been such an incredible journey. Do you believe this is the, the crowning work for you? Is this the legacy that you want to leave? Is this, you know, all the way to the end of days? This is, you know, I wanted to see Warby Parker all the way through. Is that, is that the legacy for you? I, I think so, and certainly at the moment, right, we, we wanted from day one to build something that could be like a 100-year brand, mm. um, and uh, I love what I'm doing. I love the people I'm working with. I'm excited about the impact. I just had an interview today um, with a, a reporter that's doing a story on this luggage company, Away, mm. um, and that was started by two Warby Parker employees, and I was just like, that's so awesome that we now have people that have left Warby Parker and gone on to start their own business. Yeah. Um, hopefully somewhat inspired by some of the stuff that, that we've been doing. Um, that, yeah, I, I, I love what I'm doing. I don't see myself doing anything else, but who knows That's what the awesome. future holds. That's awesome. We always end with this question. First of all, thanks so much for the time. There's been so many great takeaways from this exchange. I'll be playing this. I'll definitely be sending it to a couple of young folks that are also, you know, really trying to think through these early stages. If you could trade jobs with anyone for a day or for an extended period of time, who would it be and why? Ooh. Um, if I could trade jobs with anybody for a day, who would it, who would it be and, and why? Um, it would probably be... Elon Musk, I'd, mm. I'd be super curious on how he manages uh, Tesla um, and well, now Solar City yeah, and SpaceX yeah. and all, all of these. Uh, and I've heard also that he doesn't listen to like traditional news as much <laughs> and just reads like research papers and stuff. Yeah, I, I, I'd be curious where he gets his inspiration from great. a little bit more. Great, 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 um, great. How can people follow what you're doing? You have a blog, or Twitter, any that kind of vibe, or yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, at Warby Parker and at Neil Blumenthal okay. um, on Instagram, on Twitter, okay. um, uh, on Snap. Um, wow, yeah. Snap too. Okay, <laughs> great, great. But thanks so much for the time, man. And this is Art of the Hustle, Work Radio, iHeartMedia. You just heard Art of the Hustle featuring Warby Parker co-founder and co-CEO Neil Blumenthal, presented by Emirates Airline. For more stories, check out iHeartRadio.com slash Art of the Hustle. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman 
chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. 